Welcome once again. I'm Luke from TRP Podcast. Good to have you with us for a continuation on the subject of theology and ethics, theological foundations of American politics. And as you know, the Republican Professor Podcast, our tagline is all things related to American politics that we discuss. So we have conversations, large and small, about any number of things. And today we have a very special guest with us, just like the last two times we have Professor Helmut Tielicke, longtime professor of theology at the University of Hamburg. Um, and Professor Tielicke joins us once again through his teaching in his Magisterial Theological Ethics, Volume 2, Politics. And my copy here is a hard copy that I got from Old Capital Books in Monterey, California, which is just off of Alvarado Street, I think east of Alvarado Street, up the stairs. I used to be over on Tyler Street, 559 Tyler across from uh, what is the Pete's Coffee. And um, I had a wonderful time in that bookstore. I've always had a wonderful time in that bookstore for the years and years and years uh, that I've been going to it, and even before when it was Haven Books. Uh, this is published, my copy is published by uh, Fortress Press, 1969. This is edited by... Um, uh, what's his name? William H. Lazarus. And we want to thank Fortress Press for making this available. Um, and I think you should check out fortresspress.com and take a look at their catalog. They have a, a number of wonderful selections and titles. Uh, take, take a look at them and buy one. In fact, I would say, buy a copy of this, have your own copy and read along as we do a performative reading, a transformative reading with scholarly commentary uh, and make a good fair use of, of this material uh, as it shapes our thinking uh, about American politics. And so just to refresh our memory from the last two times, I'm going to take a drink of water really quick. Uh, thank you for letting me do that. <clears throat> we covered the transition from authoritarian to democratic thinking, his chapter two. And um, we're going to dip into his chapter three, which I said uh, before, I don't know if you remember, was about ideological tyranny. Now, I don't like that word ideology. I don't use it. I'm not a fan of the term. I prefer the term philosophy. Uh, that's the term that's in the Bible. Um, uh, there's a warning in the letters of Paul uh, to uh, be on guard against vain and deceitful philosophies that depend on the traditions of men rather than on Christ. Um, <clears throat> so 
I, I admire Professor Tilika so much that I'm going to give him as much wiggle room as he wants on this, as far as the term ideology. I think it's a very compelling picture he gives because as we covered in the first episode, two episodes ago, a little bit about uh, Professor Tilika's life. He grew up in Germany, got two PhDs, one in philosophy, one in theology, and was teaching when uh, National Socialism took over. And and then after that, um, World War II basically cut the country in half. Well, not quite half. Stalin got a little bit less than half on East Germany and uh, the, the West, uh, the, the more friendly to Great Britain and United States, got the Western half of Germany. And so how, Professor Tilika was looking across the border. Remember, we talked about this. He was looking across the border and, and communism is in his backyard. So he had opportunity as a scholar to reflect in an up close and personal kind of way about the two types of socialism that had basically destroyed Germany. National socialism, and that's his term for the Nazis, and communist socialism. And he calls it the Soviet doctrine, the, the totalitarian state in Soviet doctrine. But he talks about these two forms of radical leftism as if they're two sides of the same coin. We talked about that a bit on in the first um, uh, two, two episodes ago when we first uh, introduced Helmut Tielica. Now, to clarify, once again, Professor Tielica uh, was not able to come on physically on the podcast because he died before we were able to get him on the podcast. And um, so he joins us through his teaching here. And here's Helmut Tielica in his chapter three, Ideological Tyranny. And the section title is called The Totalitarian State in Soviet Doctrine. Okay. Remember, he's in Hamburg at the time. And he's looking across the border. <laughs> well, you can't see the border from Hamburg, but it's it's not too far away, East Germany. So as a theologian, as a philosopher, he's thinking deeply about how theology can uh, shed light on politics. And that's his topic. So strap in, here we go. Here's Tilika, page 22. Take notes and get your own copy, okay? In considering how political ethics has so changed in the modern period as to make the application of traditional concepts such as the concept of authority difficult or even impossible, we touched first on the modern democracy. Remember, that was from two, two episodes ago, okay? But it is obvious that its rival, the ideological power state, interesting term, 
the ideological power state, brings us face to face with the same problem. A moment ago, we indicated that the totalitarian state cannot be brought into theological coordination with the authoritarian state of former times, for it represents a doctrinaire ideology which claims the whole man. As such, it goes beyond its sphere of competence as an order of secular power, a kingdom on the left hand, and purports to be a dispenser of salvation. A communist theoretician reading this book would be shocked by the terms we have just used, not so much because our reference to ideological tyranny, not be so much because of our reference to ideological tyranny, as because we have subsumed the communist system of government under the rubric of, quote, totalitarian state, unquote. Since this expression does not occur in Marxist-Leninist doctrine, at least in its description of its ultimate goals, the communist would accuse us of terminological imprecision, even falsification. For him, every political expression such as the people, democracy, freedom, the nation, socialism, and so on, had a precisely determined meaning. He's quoting Wolfgang Leonhardt, The Child of the Revolution, uh, 1958. Regnery, page uh, 381. That's in the footnote there. <clears throat> For him, quote, every political expression, such as, quote, the people, democracy, freedom, the nation, socialism, and so on, had a precisely determined meaning. Any use of these terms, which did not correspond to our definition, was called unscientific. We assumed it to have been written by people who had not the slightest basic political education, unquote. Since we uh, will thus be using a term which is not current in communist doctrine, Remember, he's writing this in 1969. He's publishing in 1969. Okay. And we shall do this later with other uh, terms as well, inasmuch we are not bound to our thinking exclusively within the categories of our opponents. It is essential that some brief explanation of our usage be made. Notice he calls the communists his opponents, and that's very Right, right there, you know, you maybe have a friend here, <laughs> okay? To begin, we will adhere to a definition of the totalitarian state proposed by O. Stammer, who says that totalitarian rule is present when, uh, quote, a mass movement which is centrally oriented rests on a monopoly of power and government, and is authoritatively led by a political minority. Uh, is, is authoritatively led by a political minority develops with the help of a dictator dictatorially ruled state, a bureaucratically sustained machinery of government which asserts itself 
in every sphere of society. Unquote. Oh my gosh. Sorry, I'm just having a moment here. He's talking about the United States. This is a this is a sober moment here. I'm I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that my mentor Michael Yulman used to ask us. And I'm going to let it sit for a second while you think of the answer. Uh, and I'm going to grab a, a drink of green tea, drink of water while you're thinking about it for a second. Can you name one thing that is not regulated by government in the United States? Still here, drinking green tea. Don't want to. I'm going to give you a few seconds to think about that. Still here. Well, did you come up with something? How many uh, pages of rules are added to the Federal Register each month? Uh, screw that, each day. How many pages were already there yesterday? How many uh, agencies have authority to add to the Federal Register? of rules. We're not talking about Congress. I'm talking about the executive branch. If you don't know, that's a problem. <laughs> you should be able to tell me right away. Unless we're living more and more in a bureaucratically sustained machinery of government, which asserts itself in every sphere of society, just like he quoted, was a description of the totalitarian state. According to his reflection on communism as it was happening, every unbiased reader will see in this precise and perspicacious definition a description of the state constructed along Marxist-Leninist lines. For example, states such as the Soviet Union and its satellites. But the communist theoretician would raise certain basic objections against this understanding of his state. He would say that the definition does not apply because Marxism-Leninism does not give such centrality to the state and hence cannot be regarded as a proponent of state totalitarianism. What can be said in reply to this objection? It is true, of course, that in an early work called, and I can't say that, sorry, Critique des Heg 
Skelchen Stotz. I can't say it. It's apparently a commentary on Hegel's philosophy of the, the right, the state. Mark, Marx objects to Hegel's thesis that the state exists essentially to provide a rational and just social order. For Marx, the state is rather an institution which serves to represent private interests. To maintain this thesis, Marx had to attack the foundation of Hegel's philosophy of the state, namely his uh, uh, doctrine of the objective spirit. The point of this doctrine, as far as our specific question is concerned, is that the highest form in which morality is objectively realized is the state. That's according to Hegel. That's in the philosophy of the right. Family and society are our only preliminary steps to this supreme form. He also talks about it in uh, his philosophy of history. Marx calls this notion a mystification because he necessarily rejects from the very outset Hegel's idealistic starting point, whereby the objective spirit is accorded ontic priority over such a concrete reality as that of the family. Marx was a materialist. Okay, That's, this is me. Hegel was not a materialist. He believed in spirit, not matter, that was ultimately um, real. That's what that ontic priority means. Okay, so Marx is saying that Hegel has this wrong. In Marx's view, Hegel has reversed the roles of the conditioning factor, family and society, and that which is conditioned, the state, thus executing that inversion of the order of reality which dialectical materialism seeks to correct. The state, accordingly, is not to be understood as a universal given a priori. Um, it is rather a product deriving a posteriori from real given factors. <laughs> real means material for, for Marx. That which truly exists, I'm on page 24 now, the real given factor is the particular citizen. The citizen, however, not in the sense of his being an individual, an individual derivation of the state is uh, rejected as surely an idealistic, idealist derivation, but in the sense of his being that real subject, which as socialized man has raised itself to the level of universality. It is easy to see how this leads to a relativization of the state. Such relativization, however, does not necessarily mean that the state thus relativized cannot still be totalitarian. 
for socialized man, who is obviously the antithesis of individualized man, will undoubtedly be somewhat more amenable to the embrace of an apparatus which totally encompasses him. This is not to say, of course, that the totalitarian apparatus in question will necessarily be the state. It could be the monopoly party, which it really is becomes clear only as one comes to understand the actual relation of the state and party in Marxism-Leninism. At this point, though, it is important to point out that the initial thesis of the young Marx, that the state is less a means to adjust social order than a tool of private interests, is established itself in dialectical materialism and then was given a most peculiar twist in the communist state. How you doing? Hanging in there? Hang in there. Hang in there. This is important stuff. And it, even if you're not getting it, even if you're not getting 70% of it, hang in there because that's how you grow. I, I, I've been exposed since I was a wee lad to stuff that was over my head. You eventually get used to it. You eventually start understanding it. Okay, so hang in there. Hang in there. Trust me, you're going to learn a lot. And this is very important. Here's Tilika again. From the assertion that the state is an organization of private interests, it is only a step to the further assertion that these interests are class interests and that the state, being a champion of a particular interest, is a machine for maintaining the rule of one class by another. To this degree, by the way, let me just say this right there. He just quoted Vladimir Lenin. So as you look into the footnotes, that's why I say get your own copy of this. He's quoting Vladimir Lenin. The book is called The State and Revolution, translated from the Russian, as issued by the Marx-Engels-Lenin Institute in Moscow. Okay. He's going directly to the primary sources. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> this is not BS here. Communists controlled a huge proportion of the world population for about 100 years, almost 100 years. Decades, decades and decades. Tens of millions of people, probably about 100 million people, were, it's fair to say, murdered. Not to mention stolen from, abused, raped, and so on and so forth. Entire societies destroyed. This is very important stuff. To this degree, the state is the product and the manifestation of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms. 
the state arises when, where, and to the extent that the class antagonisms cannot be objectively reconciled. And conversely, the existence of the state proves that the class antagonisms are irreconcilable. Unquote. That's from the same book from Lenin. Such a statement implies the provisional nature of the state. For if the goal of history is the overcoming of class antagonisms in the classless society, then the function of the state will in the end be abolished, according to Marxism. But only in the end, <laughs> that's a huge but, but only in the end, when's the end? In the preliminary stage, prior to the ultimate socialist form of society, it has again an all-encompassing significance. For if the state is an organization of violence for the suppression of some class, then the victorious proletariat can, in the first instance, use a state of its own to help suppress the, the exploiting class, the bourgeoisie. The footnote there is again Lenin, his book, The State and Revolution, page 24. Lenin can say that Marxists agree with anarchists concerning the final abolition of the state. I hope you're listening to this carefully. Okay, don't lose hope. If you're, if you're not getting most of it or maybe a huge chunk of it, keep going. It's really important. You're, you're going to become educated. <laughs> Just keep going. You're becoming more and more educated here. This is very important. I'm going to read that again. Lenin can say that Marxists agree with anarchists. Concerning the final abolition of the state. Only they use a different route to the same goal. For Marxists hold that there must first be a dictatorship. Let me read that again. I'm going to read it slowly. Marxists hold that there must first be a dictatorship of the proletariat, sustained by a power state, which will oppress the opponents of the working class and so bring in the classless society. Stalin, who is certainly no deviationist in this respect, also says, that the route to the evolution of state power is by way of a temporary intensification of it. The bourgeois formal logician being unable to interpret history dialectically. By the way, I taught logic. So who do you think he's talking about there? I'm not rich. 
but the person who likes logic, me, the bourgeois formal logician being unable to interpret history dialectically, that is materially, will of course be forced to assume that uh, a state dictatorship involves the indefinite perpetuation of state power. This is why such formal logicians arrive at the foolish conclusion, according to Marx, he's not saying it's foolish. Remember, he said that they're his opponents. Helmet, Tilica, I'm saying. This is why such formal logicians arrive at the foolish conclusion that to do away with the state, one must begin by limiting it. One must begin by limiting it. I'm for limited government. The founding fathers were for limited government. That's He's talking about American government there. That's a limited government. Right? Article 1 creates the Congress. Remember what uh, the first clause of Article 1 is? Well, do you? Do you know what the first clause of Article 1 is? Look for the term herein granted. That is a limitation on government power. The lawmaking power is limited to those things that are herein granted. The Constitution specifically gives those things that can be made by the national government. I'm for limited government. The Marxists are saying they're not. In fact, says Stalin, the very opposite is the case. Only the most extreme intensification of the state can lead to its ab abolition. I'm going to look at footnote 7. And footnote seven is C. J. V. Stalin, Questions of Leninism, published in 1926. He's he's quoting Stalin himself. Here there are obviously two overriding considerations. This is Tilaka again. There is first the strategic consideration that the prepositions of a stateless society, sorry, presuppositions of a stateless society can be created only by an instrument of force, the state. They cannot arise without a more or less forceful intervention. The second consideration is that Hegelian dialectic plays its part in this plan the thesis of state dictatorship calling forth the antithesis of statelessness. Of course, the thesis is transitory, as Dr. Noble told me when I was 14 years old. We believe that in the light of these considerations, we are justified in identifying ideological tyranny with the totalitarian state. 
For even according to the self-understanding of Marxism-Leninism, there has to be a dictatorial intensification of state power, at least as a transitional stage. If the transitional stage lasts hundreds of years, then that's no consolation when you're subject to that transitional stage. By the way, they're atheists, and so they don't think that there's anything else. That's it. This is their religion. Since it is with this stage, however, that we have concretely to do, what we have to do is, in fact, what we have to do with is, in fact, the totalitarian state. Whether the totalitarian apparatus of the state will be subsequently replaced by that of the party or something else, or whether its dissolution will take a completely different form from that prognosticated by communists need not concern us here. The point is that we see no reason, whatever, for regarding the relativization of the state in communist doctrine as a true relativization, or for refusing to equate ideological tyranny with totalitarianism. Perhaps even the dedicated Marxist would grant us, if not the rightness of our polemic, at least the right to regard his supposed transitional stage, the state we see today. He's talking about East Germany, looking over the border. He's talking about the Soviet Union, communist China, North Korea, Vietnam was happening at the same time, right? as the age of the totalitarian state. Now, we're going to go into one more small little section here, and then we'll wrap it up for today. The concept of ideology. If we are to grasp theologically the implications of a development whereby a state becomes an ideological tyranny going beyond its role as a force for order on the left hand, and illegitimately presuming to be a dispenser of salvation. We must be clear also as to what we mean by ideology. Okay, I'm paying attention because I hate that word. All right, Helmut, tell us. To put it very generally and not very precisely, we may say at the outset, that by ideological tyranny, we mean a state having a particular worldview. By worldview, we mean the attempt to subsume all cosmic phenomena under a single theme or formula from which they will derive their ultimate meaning. Thus, no matter what sphere of life we are concerned to understand, be it history, nature, science, or art, all are brought under a common denominator. The state that espouses and represents such a worldview is actually present in all sphere of life. There are no spheres outside it. Thus, a state that has a particular worldview is always a totalitarian state. 
Now, man exists in the zone where these spheres intersect. If then we are totally taken over by the state, man in his totality is also claimed by the state. He loses his personal autonomy and becomes a functionary. Should he claim any area of privacy for himself, he makes himself an enemy of the state. This is why, incidentally, I, I believe so much in the Second Amendment, because the first thing they go for to enforce this is your ability to protect yourself from crime, any kind of crime, in public or in private. It's always, that's always what happens. Always. There are no counterexamples to that. Okay. Should he claim any area of privacy for himself, he makes himself an enemy of the state. The totalitarian state, I'm on page 26, therefore is not an organism in which persons are related to each uh, to other persons individually and communally. It is rather a mechanism in which all have been relegated to the status of group functionaries. By thus subjecting man to itself, the totalitarian state actually violates the image of God in man. To this degree, it is atheistic in its very nature, even though, as in national socialism, as in national socialism, that's the Nazis, also on the left, socialism, it may maintain the idea of God as a kind of mystical undergirding. That's scary. Such a state cannot in principle be brought onto that line, which we have seen to be common to the authoritarian state. Remember, he's talking about the authoritarian state as the ancient Rome, that Paul was, you know, writing to the Romans saying, pay your taxes and, you know, Remember Romans 13, the first few verses? See, see the first episode, okay. two episodes ago. Such a state cannot in principle be brought into onto the line which we have seen to be common to the authoritarian state and modern democracy. For one thing, such a state is not something entrusted to man. It is rather the institutional expression of man's claim to be the one who alone gives meaning to his world. Furthermore, the reason which gives shape to such a state is not endeavoring to accomplish a task that has been given to it as a recipient. Instead, it insists on determining its own purpose in, in its effort to become absolute and in doing so, of course, becomes unreason. Uh, in other words, the reason which has abandoned its vocation. 
That's an important point because he's going to talk about propaganda and how propaganda is the opposite of reason and uh, persuasion. And um, uh, the comments about the logician, uh, the snide comments from the Marxists about logicians, that that all gets wrapped up into the the hatred of reason. But they do like the the propaganda of science, which pretends to be reasonable. But that's because they like power, and that's a way to get power. Okay, that's where we're headed. This brief sketch of the essential features of the totalitarian state is hardly enough, of course, to show us why the intellectual constructs which determine it should be referred to as ideologies rather than ideas. It is intrinsically conceivable that they could be called ideas. In other times and context, men have championed the idea of a Christian state or Christian civilization. Why not? Why should uh, one not uh, speak also of the idea of a communist state or the idea of a classless society? Why is it that both friend and foe speak here so emphatically of ideologies, the former in the sense of a program, the latter as a a term of reproach? We can uh, answer this question only if we examine the concept ideology a little more closely. To do this, we must first discuss the Marxist concept of the superstructure, and then in the next chapter, set forth a pragmatic background of ideologies and their theological character as idolatry. That's on page 27. All right, so where we're headed is uh, more consideration of um, his analysis of communism going directly to the sources and national socialism, both as totalitarian power states, and pseudo-churches. And it's it's quite scary, but you need to, this is stuff that's actually happened in the past, could happen again, in fact, may be the goal unwittingly or wittingly of um, very powerful people even today, and which I'm opposed to on the Republican Professor podcast. So today, uh, would you please join me in thanking Professor Tilika for being with us here through his teaching in theological ethics politics. Uh, Once again, please check out fortresspress.com and check out their catalog. Buy a copy. You can get this used. Um, I got this used. In fact, this copy was uh, the in the office of the post chaplain at Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, New York. Stamped right there. Isn't that fun? That's fun for the whole family right there. And I bought this in Monterey. My favorite, one of my favorite bookstores there. Um, For a long time, it was Haven Books, and now it's Old Capital Books. But get your copy wherever good books are sold. Support your local book retailers. Support your used bookstores that are brick and mortar. Don't just use Amazon. You know, spread it out a little bit, okay? Let's not give one company so much power, all right? Let's let's slice and dice a little bit here, okay, with the power. 
let's separate power here, okay? Um, I'm a little creeped out by all this totalitarian talk. Thanks for being with me. We'll see you next time.